This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. We all know there are more than four seasons. There are, in fact, as many seasons as there are days or even shifts in light. Late summer in the American West is certainly some part fire season. Part of our natural history is a life in relationship with fire. This week, I'm joined by nature and science adventurer and writer Gary Ferguson. His wide-ranging work can be found at wildwords.net. He describes much of his work as breaking down the walls that exist between the natural world and the human psyche. And further, that the first half of his writing career was devoted to telling the stories of the tracks human beings have left in nature, classic environmental writing, if you will, and the last half as being much more about the tracks that nature leaves in us. Gary's most recent book, Land on Fire, The New Reality of Wildfire in the West, out now from Timber Press, is a collection of scientific lectures about wildfire, which at their best serve as a window into the larger issue of our own relationship to the natural world. Gary joins us today from Oregon Public Broadcasting in Portland to speak about these topics and more. Welcome, Gary. Thank you, Jennifer. Great to be with you. It's late summer. We here in interior Northern California are entering yet another 10-day stretch where we are expected to be over 103 and up to 109 for the next 10 days. And this is the time of year where as someone who lives or hikes or gardens in this region, you notice immediately if you hear that spotter plane in the air. You notice immediately if you can see the air quality has changed in that very specific way that means there's a fire burning nearby. And you certainly notice if you can smell fire on on the breeze on a given day. You clearly come from the West, if not born there, have lived and experienced and written about the American West for a good long time. Give us a little bit about your background, Gary, on on where you grew up and how you built your own relationship to the land. Well, I actually grew up in northern Indiana. I always said that the stork uh, dropped me way too far to the east, uh, <laughs> sort of in the, in the corn and the rust. And I told my parents when I was nine years old I was going to move to the Rocky Mountains. And uh, announced when I was 13 uh, with money from mowing lawns and shoveling snow to fund the uh, journey that I was going to ride my stingray to Colorado. And they mysteriously put the kibosh on that, and I was not allowed to do that. But I finally did get out where I started working as a naturalist in the late 70s in the Sawtooth Mountains of Idaho. And relative to fire, I had a wonderful teacher in the Sawtooths, uh, an ecologist and biologist, and he taught me early on to see the landscapes of the West in terms of fire, how they've been so shaped and they're so adapted over thousands and thousands of years. The shapes of the trees, the spacing of the trees, the grasses, the wildflowers, the insects, the birds, the mammals, all have really been shaped to a tremendous degree by fire. And I decided to write this particular book because I, I noticed that in the late 90s and since 2000, the nature of fire has really uh, changed pretty profoundly. We're now in an era of so-called megafires, which are defined as being over 100,000 acres. And while that used to be fairly uncommon, uh, since 2000, we've had 
10 seasons with more than a dozen mega fires. Yeah. And uh, I'm afraid that this is going to be the way things are going to, uh, to stay for a while. And so I'm very interested as a, uh, an ecologist to see what the effect on the landscape will be. And I'm interested in a human because I know a lot of people are, um, are struggling. You mentioned how you're always tuned into the, uh, uh, the potential for fire. And in Montana, where I live most of the time, the same is true for us. We look at the flag flying mm-hmm. above the post office to see if it's fluttering and which direction the wind's blowing, if there's a fire nearby. And it, it really is changing a, a great deal of what it means to be a, a human in the West in the 21st century. And certainly that was I think that was always true. So I grew up in uh, Colorado at about 8,000 feet west of Denver and definitely in the Ponderosa Pine. And my father was part of the um, volunteer firefighter service there, the communication service. And he was also on the water board for the state. And so it's not that it hasn't always been part of our life. It's just that it is changing. And this is one of the things I found really compelling about the book and about some of the information in the book. Talk talk a little, I want you to back up a little bit on your personal side and tell us about your training that led you into some of this work, some of your educational work, and then um, your, the beginning of your writing career that then ultimately led to this most recent book. Sure. Um, I was an environmental science major at Indiana University uh, during the uh, school year while in the summer I was out in Idaho doing that naturalist job I I mentioned. And then as soon as I graduated from IU, um, I I dove in uh, probably before I should have and and, and really got after the writing. Uh, I, I knew that I would not be a writer unless I could write about the natural world. So I continued to write stories that would put me um, in the company of experts, people who really knew what they were talking about. And it was my delightful experience early on with writing that I was never able to focus on a subject for very long or very intensely without having the people who were educating me sort of break my frame around how I thought the world Hmm. would work. And I and I really came to appreciate that as the ideal quality of, of being a writer is to continue to have the frame around the world that you thought defined how people were and how things worked, uh, routinely splintered and have to start again with a bigger frame, a bigger canvas. And I have, as you mentioned earlier, moved very significantly from just talking about what humans have done to the earth to uh, switching to what the tracks are that nature leaves in our lives. And I'm increasingly impressed with what sort of healing is available to us from the smallest encounters with nature, from our flower box gardens to, you know, the, the wilderness, large roaming wildernesses that I've spent time in. I think it's a, it's a healing force. And in this particular time and place in our culture, it opens the doorway to perspectives and um, uh, it's a sense of ease that we really do need to bring, I think, to the world if, if we're going to uh, continue to occupy it in a way that we don't uh, blow each other uh, up or otherwise uh, subject each other to unnecessary suffering. Yeah. And I, I think, again, this is one of the elements that I found very refreshing about the approach that you took in the book um, is how it educates us on fire as a part of life, as a part of this cycle. And even now, as the behavior of fire is changing, as you map out in the book, the it is still 
uh, it is a part of our, our cycle and system. And if we can become familiar with it and face our own fears about it and our own, as, as you mentioned, you know, kind of box that we're seeing it in, if we can take that box off and look at it more holistically, we can approach how to go forward on a lot of different fronts in a much more intelligent and proactive way and less just sort of reactively violent towards our land. Yes, I think that's a wonderful point. And, you know, developmental psychologists, many of them are fond of talking about what they term as the embeddedness environment. And it basically means that as you go from one developmental stage to the next throughout a life, there is typically a a somewhat significant disruption that has to happen to get you to not exactly leave behind the old development because you transcend and include as we go through life, but to get you prepped for what's coming next. And there's a, you know, a wonderful set of metaphors about fire that way. Fire has always been a uh, a real healthy ecological force on the landscape in the West. It's what clears the forest floor of debris, and it keeps insects and other pathogens in check. And most significantly, in an arid country, it's the only way that nutrients return to the soil and are available for the next flush of life. So fire is is very important, if, if somewhat inconvenient to, to us humans. And uh, it's really the fact that we thought it was a bad thing and put it out for so long, so many mm. decades in the 20th century, that is, is one major reason why, why we're having these bigger fires today. So that really gets us into the content of the book and into the structure that you use to frame your conversations. And they are, each chapter and section in the book is really its own discussion about a particular concept. The first being, as I mentioned, the function of fire, and the second being the ever-changing human perception of fire, and, and some sort of new understandings about how we used to approach it, and new understandings about ways in which we might approach it. So you you, I think, have covered, but maybe you want to add to this idea of the functions of fire. Um, and those are the, you know, kind of positive ways or not and necessarily, I don't necessarily want to use positive negative language, but the, the function that it served in the landscape without considering how it interfaces with human dwellings. Yes, yes, it really was a, a key to, to health. Again, the primary reason being not just because it kept insects uh, and pathogens in check, but in an arid country without very many decomposers like they would have in the eastern United right. States, um, fire is the only way that the essential um, elements that are held in a, in a dead tree are returned to the earth and therefore can feed the next flush of life. And this is a, a, a critical thing to, to remember. And typically, across hundreds of years, we know from studying tree rings and, and various other kinds of uh, research that's been done, um, it's not that there weren't big big fires uh, every once in a while, but they were fairly rare. And what was more common was every eight or ten years, a so-called stand maintenance fire would, yeah. would come through. And it would have temperatures around 1,200 degrees as opposed to a 2,000 degrees or, mm. or more for a mega fire, and it would be fairly small, uh, six to eight foot tall flames. It would not destroy the entire forest. In fact, the ponderosa you mentioned earlier um, has adapted to have very thick bark and no uh, branches on the lower part of the trunk so that the fire can't climb up the tree and destroy the crown. So the the more mature trees would typically survive these stand maintenance fires. And what you would end up with is a, a mosaic of burns and not burned, and then also a mixed age forest. And 
diversity in general, um, if I could say, is the most fundamental predictor of a healthy, sustainable ecosystem. And so fires burned in a way that actually maximized diversity. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're speaking with Gary Ferguson, author most recently of Land on Fire, the new reality of wildfire in the West. Through its structure, reported research, and narrative, Land on Fire invites us to expand our own awareness about the lessons that we, individually and culturally, could learn from the many functions of fire. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Gary Ferguson, author of Land on Fire. Welcome back. This was beautifully laid out in the book, this idea of those stand maintenance fires and the uh, the visual description you gave of, you know, early settlers riding on horseback through Ponderosa Pine Forest and the floor was, the space between the sort of the headspace to the floor was relatively clear because as the canopy got taller, those lower branches would just drop off. This was one of their adaptations, this self-pruning. And so the fire did just go along the floor, burn that debris, burn the pine needle litter, and, you know, it kind of crept along and went. And this, I think, comes into play this information is now being used in a very constructive way when the firefighting strategy makers are considering how how do we try and recreate that kind of stand maintenance fire with prescribed burns or pruning. And so all of this information is able to be put to really good use. Yes, that's absolutely right. And and one of the, the treatments, they call them, uh, that's going on right now by the Forest Service and state forest uh, folks in California to be CAL FIRE is to do what are known as prescribed burns. And that is to go in and really try to mimic exactly what we've been talking about, the old stand maintenance fires. Now, it's tricky because we're at a time where climate change has dried things out to a considerable degree and warmed things up compared to what used to be the case. And also because we had 70 to 80 years of fire suppression, in some areas we've got a big fuel load sitting on the forest floor. So we don't have just eight or 10 years accumulation. We've got 70 and 80 years. In fact, right now there are uh, um, an amazing 300 million acres, almost three times the size of California uh, in the West that are considered under heavy fuel loads. So that prescription burning really has to be done carefully and uh, with people who, who know what they're doing. Just to give a visual to, to listeners who may or may not have experienced this, I have family still in Colorado quite a bit. And the drive from Denver up into the high country, the Vail Valley and Winter Park Valley, and the fire suppression combined with the beetle kill. You can see brown, dead, drying trees for miles, miles. And it is um, it is very disheartening, and it is scary. Well, it, it very much is. And um, speaking of dead trees, beetle kill trees, uh, California for both insects and drought-related uh, mortality in trees, in 2016 lost 60 million trees. Uh, that's a phenomenal uh, mortality God. rate on, on trees for any state in any year. And, of course, as, as those trees die, they do become, you know, additions to that, that fuel load. 
And so, um, not to be overly dire, but these these are all, to me, wake-up calls. The fire themselves, the additional activity that beetles are allowed because of warming temperatures um, mm-hmm. that we've helped create. Um, it's, it's an opportunity for us to really take a close look and um, find ways, meaningful ways, to be in a more sustainable, uh, holistic relationship with the Earth that, that really does support us so beautifully. Right. It is definitely an opportunity, and that is probably the very nicest way of putting that, <laughs> Carrie. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, and, and you don't want to be just doom and gloom, but the fact is that if we, especially those of us, so I personally live in a little suburb on the outsir- you know, outskirts of a small city. I am not technically in the wildland urban interface, um, but a lot of people are, and as you note in the book, more and more people are. And it brings up the, the almost, I want to say, like rat's nest or perfect storm of components that are coming to play, the, the climate change, the, the drying and warming of a lot of the American West, the, um, that increased risk of um, insects and pathogens, the invasive plants that are coming in as we remove portions of healthy existing landscape, uh, native landscape. And so now that we're at the lowest point in this conversation, <laughs> uh, start, to, uh, you know, because your, your book is not just about that. It is giving us a very good lay of the land, as it were, of, of what the situation is. But then you have a lot of information and thoughts on where we are going from here. And you traveled really widely and you bring in a lot of research from the different organizations that are working hard on these problems and the solutions to them in a really, um, I was impressed to get a sense that there is a lot of coordination and collaboration across the states, across the firefighting. And um, I don't even like that word. There must be a better word, right? Yeah, that's right. um, Yeah, the fire management um, uh, groups across our region. So talk a little bit about what you found. And, um, you know, once you got over being almost paralyzed by the, what, 10 increased weeks each year of fire season, uh, that right there floored me. Yes, it's it's really amazing. Seventy five days uh, additional fire season since um, since nineteen seventy two, and and that's growing fairly rapidly. There are some parts of the country that may have you know fire seasons all year long. You mentioned being from Colorado, and Boulder had a, a pretty good fire breakout in mm-hmm. February this year. So yeah. um, it it is moving in that direction. You know, there are lots of uh, good things going on. Uh, part of it is that we do. Uh, enjoy a, uh, a wonderful breakthrough uh, technology every few months as far as the application of of computers and science to understanding what's happening on the land and therefore better anticipating where fires might occur. Our NASA uh, thermal imaging satellites are flying around the globe at all times and can usually give us a very good sense and therefore allow the fire management teams to stage their resources in the places that these thermal yeah. imaging um, devices say is is are most likely to to go up in smoke. But that that's a big help. We're we're certainly giving uh, more apps uh, 
to fire uh, fighters uh, so that they can be on the line and use their cell phones and laptops to really pinpoint localized wind and weather conditions, which is essential because these are very these mega fires we talked about earlier are very different um, critters than the stand maintenance fires, and they're much more dangerous. They create their own weather, and it's part of the reason why. Um, since 2000, there's even though only 5% of the firefighters in the United States are wildland firefighters, they suffer a, a mortality, a death rate uh, mm. from the job that's about six times higher. And part of the reason uh, has to do with these big mega fires. So to give them technology that allows them to really understand what's going on in the moment is critical. But then the thing that's really exciting for, for me, Jennifer, would be um, what's happening to allow people who are living in the wildland urban interface, and there are lots of them and there are going to be lots more, only 20% of about a billion acres of wildland urban interface is, is developed at this point, more will be developed. But there are some very simple things that programs like FireWise or Fire Adapted Communities um, have uh, going on as far as helping people learn the simple things they need to do to make their homes and their developments, if not fireproof, certainly fire resistant. And and some of these are, are so easy, uh, five-foot aprons around the house of non-flammable non material, putting screen mesh over your uh, attic vents and crawl space vents, not having shrubs growing under your tall trees in your yard for the fire to climb up into the canopy of the tree. They're really quite um, easily accomplished, and yet amazingly, out of 70,000 communities in the wildland urban interface, only about 3% have done those steps yet. Right. So that, that was phenomenal to me. When I read that, I was like, what? Yes, I know. It's, it's incredible. And I think people either don't know, that's probably the biggest reason, or, you know, in the past, we perhaps fell into the habit of thinking, well, that's just something that's going to happen to someone else, or it's a one in a hundred chance. And we are getting to a point where, you know, I think it's sinking in that wildfire is with us to stay. So hopefully more people will will join in. Uh, you know, there, there's a wonderful program I should mention. Um, you can find it on the internet. It's called Community Planning Assistance for Wildfire. Community Planning Assistance for Wildfire. The Forest Service helps um, run it, but it was started by a, a extremely uh, capable group called Headwaters Economics in Bozeman, Montana, and they will, for free, uh, fly their team into your community and talk with citizens as well as county commissioners and others about how to make your your communities and subdivisions uh, much more fire resistant, how to use open spaces and recreational trails as natural fire breaks. And, and it's just a fantastic program. And uh, if any of your listeners are interested, I would I would look them up. It's a it's a great group of people doing wonderful things. And I think this is the 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 access point for how home gardeners, homeowners, nature lovers can really be a, a part of the solution and the collaboration. And of course, in California, we have a fantastic system of things called fire safe councils. And I think almost every county, if not every township, has a chapter of them. And they provide very effective information for your specific type of vegetation and um, the recommended, you know, best practices for just how how wide that fire break should be between your house and any dense planting and 
as you say, these these relatively small but very important tips like those screens over the attic vents and making sure your gutters are clean and paying attention to things like ladder fuel, um, meaning those smaller shrubs or grasses that are allowed to grow up near the base of a tall tree because the it literally acts like a ladder. The fire climbs up and then is able to get into the lower branches of the trees. And so they have great, I printed out one from our Butte County um, Fire Safe Council, and it's got a wonderful PDF of exactly what you what you need to do and keep in mind, including things like slope and prevailing wind. And and I think those are, are really important things for us to keep in mind. Uh, in the last, just in the last year, so California Native Plant Society has a wonderful journal they put out called Fremontia. Fremontia had a whole issue dedicated to fire and native plants because I think in our area, and it might be different in, in Montana and in Oregon, but there is to some extent a challenging mindset, which is that the native vegetation is fire prone as opposed to it being actually fire adapted. And they think it's, you know, it, it, it develops this perception of being fire um, hazardous because it has, as you say, been allowed to build up all these years of fire suppression. So the chaparral is dense and it's full of old fuel and it, it you know, lights up in a second with lightning or human error, which is far more likely to be the case. And so there has been this mo- movement where people have in an effort to be safe, have gone and just denuded their landscape around their house uh, in on the outskirts of big cities, like in you know in the county rural areas, and have caused a thousand more problems. And these are some of the things I think we're learning. And you bring up beautifully in the book that the minute you clear a landscape of the native vegetation, you open it up to invasion by invasive species that are far more flammable. You create incredible havoc with erosion yes. and landslides, yes. um, and all of that is. You know, there are these lessons that we keep trying to get better at. Yes, we do. And good for us for continuing to try to get better. Right. Uh, but we right. do uh, have a long history of making missteps. And maybe one of the uh, things we can just ask of ourselves more than any other is just to have the humility uh, and not the hubris when we go into uh, trying to solve these problems to, to learn from nature herself and to understand that we will make wrong steps and that we can correct them. And uh, I, I think that's just a, a far better way to proceed because that that is going to be the case. I'm so glad you brought up about uh, the consequences of, of denuding landscape as far as invasive species and also erosion and debris slides. Uh, it's, those are very serious problems that, that lead to all kinds of pain and suffering um, <laughs> that we're not going to probably get into here. But yeah, it really does require um, an educated uh, approach to, to solving or at least um, moderating these issues. And I think you know, to follow up on what you just said, the the, ori- the the first chapter of the book, which is giving this history of what we know about how fire has behaved and changed over time, is a lesson in looking both very closely and learning to read a landscape in overview and taking that information and using it to develop insights into how Mother Nature works and how to work with 
that instead of in reaction to it. Yes, and, and you know, it's, it's probably worth keeping in mind that what we see out in, in nature, I mean, nature left to her own devices is, is really, and, and humans are as well, but the best of, of, in the case of some parts of nature, billions of years of adaptation and trial and error and, and uh, success and failure. And so that there would be much brilliance to learn and to borrow for our own lives uh, w- w- makes perfect sense. I had a friend who uh, used to get out into the natural world and say, look at this, we're walking among champions when he looked out at the trees and the flowers. And because these are the survivors, these are the ones that have you know, managed to figure out how to be on the land and with the land uh, over, over many, many thousands of years and uh, much to teach us. Yeah. You have a wonderful quote early in the book, which is, Trees are the keepers of stories about the landscape. I really liked that. Yes, that's a. I've heard that from several uh, Native American tribes, and uh, I, I appreciate it like I never have before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that description of reading the tree rings for drought and fire cycles and reading the fire scars in old stands and then putting that whole map together to get a sense of historic fire behavior, I thought was just, it was a a beautiful reading of what is in front of us and trying to, to learn from it. Well, thank you. The, and, and so this part of the conversation kind of gets us into some of the more less quantitative, more qualitative things that gardeners and other nature lovers can do to think about the footsteps they leave on on the land. And you certainly bring this up in Land on Fire, but I think it's even more more formally articulated in some of your other work, including um, a wonderful essay that you sent me that was published in Orion last year and won a, a wonderful and well-deserved award. Talk a little bit about that essay for people, Gary. Well, that essay actually grew out of a, a book that preceded it, which I'm uh, out of 25 books. My, my favorite thus far is one called The Carry Home, Lessons from the American Wilderness. And it was uh, launched out of a tragedy in 2005 when my first wife, a best friend of 25 years and constant nature companion, uh, Jane, and I were in a, a terrible canoe wreck in uh, northern Ontario, and she drowned. And a couple days before this wreck, uh, remarkably, she asked me uh, if I remembered, and I hadn't heard her talk about it for a dozen years, but if I remembered where she wanted her ashes scattered if something ever happened to her. And, and three days later, I was uh, in the wake of, of her having drowned and about to begin a process over five years of, of actually uh, going out and, and scattering her ashes. And so <laughs> that particular experience really, as, as your listeners can imagine, put me back in touch with the live, lives we had lived together out in, in, in nature so much of the time and the lessons we had learned. And some of those lessons got turned into that Orion uh, piece called A Deeper Boom. And three of the things that I mentioned in that article that I, I still love to talk about and will never tire of it have to do with the fact that uh, back in the late 80s, I was asked by Crown Publishing to look into a collection, putting putting together a collection of 
just how things came to be, stories about how things in nature came to be, fanciful tales from all over the world, as, as far-ranging as I could get. And I spent about a year in folklore collections around the country um, just reading these these wonderful, delightful tales about why the robin has a red breast and how the rainbow got into the sky and uh, on and on. And it dawned on me when I was several hundred stories into what probably became a 1,500-story review um, that most of these storytellers and cultures were, in fact, I can't think of any exceptions, were seeming to me to suggest that there are three essential ingredients for us to live well in the world. And one is keeping a relationship with beauty. And the second is to have an ongoing appreciation and sense of mystery. And the third is to cultivate community. So beauty, mystery, and community. And as I started looking into each of those three things more and more, and that's what some of what this essay does, I really started to wonder if it was, in fact, not just the remarkable healing attributes these qualities have, but we could perhaps also understand some of our current cultural anxiety and, and, and uh, neurosis by virtue of having perhaps lost touch with one or more of those three things. So I do think that our, our healing in our culture and the energy for us to do the right thing comes from being in touch and sustaining those particular qualities. Wow. And for, for me, all of these qualities are brought to me by being in relationship with my garden. Oh. It, and it gets to the why we garden and why, where we find meaning in life. And it was in reading the Orion essay when you were speaking about beauty all of the examples you you give in that uh, essay relate to sort of the beauty of plants or growing or um, even being in one's own backyard. You describe a, a child pointing out a glittering spider web to, to their parent. And I thought, yeah, that that really gets to it. And and I find that if we have this sense of why, if we are invested in the why we do this, it is so much easier to remain committed and diligent to the how we do it. And and so this is for me where I see home gardeners as this huge engaged constituency, you know, all very different, all expressing this desire to to garden and grow very differently, but still that if they are invested in the why, then the how they do it, it's easy to be then an organic gardener with lower carbon footprint, with using you know, less energy overall, with incorporating all the living systems into what we do. And that comes right back into this relationship with fire somehow. I, I just could not agree with you more. I think gardens are really the best way in for um, most people in this in this country, whether it's their garden or their neighbor's garden. But all of those three right. qualities, beauty, community, and mystery, are available to the gardener. And as you, I think you suggested, by staying in touch with those qualities, we, we feed our spirits and our souls in a way that 
uh, can allow us to even take on these these bigger, uh, thornier yeah. problems like what do we do about climate change and so forth? Because we've got the the basic energy, we've got the um, relationship and 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 the love of belonging that being a gardener supports that can spill out into all other positive activities. And without that nourishment and that fuel that comes from that kind of relationship with living things, I think it's much more difficult to keep the the good fight going over a long period of time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and to me, it's even the garden of that trail we like to hike the most or that river we like to paddle. And um, you know, it it allows us to also understand the place of of death in time and um, how that's part of the cycle, as hard as it is. Yes. And the same with fire, right? Uh, I think all of those things are are suggested. The fire's metaphorical value and and how it plays out in nature uh, is 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 much more evident, I think, to somebody who's uh, got their hands in the dirt or their feet on the trail. You know, it's interesting. I, perhaps some of your listeners know this, Jennifer, but. When I was uh, doing research a number of years ago, I found a, just a spectacular uh, chronicle of how common school gardens were in the early part of the 20th century, just thousands mm-hmm. of them across the country. It was just such a source of pride, and not just to teach kids where food came from, but it was also because it was felt that um, by just having that day-to-day experience with with gardening that it would open up children's sense of curiosity and wonder and actually develop their their critical thinking in a major major way Uh, Mm -hmm. because they start asking questions well how come the bees come to this flower and not that flower and on and on and on it goes and all of these are uh, entrees into um, science and into into life itself i'm jennifer jewell and this is cultivating place today i'm speaking with nature writer and ecologist gary ferguson author most recently of Land on Fire. If the concept of expanding our awareness as gardeners or other cultivators of place is not addressed explicitly in this book, it is certainly included implicitly. And Gary and I speak more about the importance of this in our conversation. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with writer and ecologist Gary Ferguson. Welcome back. Is there anything else you would like to share with listeners about the book, about maybe surprises that you learned or new takeaways for you in relationship to fire being a resident of both Oregon and Montana? Well, I I would just say that um, there are really three parts of a a perfect storm, if you will, that has created the the existence of megafires. And we'll keep megafires with us for a long time to come. And one of those parts was to have made the mistake to put all fires out to launch, literally, uh, we called it a war, a war on wildfire. And the goal of the Forest Service in the early part of the 20th century was to have every fire that that lit up from a lightning strike out by nine the next morning. Now, that was an impossible goal, but nonetheless, um, that gives you a sense of how zealous we were. that was uh, an error. I, I think the uh, the climate change situation also comes into play very profoundly uh, with with this topic, and so those sorts of mistakes are getting us sell, getting ourselves into a, a, a bad fix, if you will. 
can initially give rise to me and I think to a lot of other people um, to feelings like, well, why bother? It's too big of a problem uh, for me to deal with or it's not going to be solved in in my lifetime or, um, you know, I want to go hide my head and, and, and not deal with these things. But what we're really talking about, I think, is first just simply looking at where we are. And, and there may be a kind of grieving that's necessary to um, mm-hmm. f- uh, ultimately forgive ourselves for the mistakes we've made. But that grieving process, I know, in the uh, after uh, math of, of Jane's death was, of course, a, a huge part of, of me growing and changing and finding a world that today is, is even richer for me. And so if we can, if we can make peace with where we are, uh, I think we can probably move forward and use fire, use the landscape, use our gardens, use our communities and our efforts to um, live with the landscape and with fire collectively in a positive way. Uh, all of this is, is a golden opportunity, I think, to not just make the world better for future generations. I love that. That's terrific. But also to give ourselves more peace and contentment and a stronger sense of integrity and belonging in the here and now. There are just so many statistics and, um, you know, the research that you brought into this book was really impressive and especially seeing as it came from across the entire West, not just, you know, it was not just California centric. And, you know, as I was reading this, um, this must have gone to press, Gary, what late late last summer? Yes, that's just about right. It was in, in September or early October, I believe. Because you referred to, I think, a a picture of one of the reservoirs, um, and I think there's a picture of one of our reservoirs being so low. And, you know, I think part one of our worries in California, where we are, you know, kind of federally focused on sometimes more than some of the other states, is that this one good winter of water, you know, fills all the reservoirs, the snowpack is good, roads in the high country didn't open until late summer, and this concept of understanding what that means and what that doesn't mean seems very important in terms of our own behavior. It doesn't mean the drought is over. It doesn't mean you can waste water. And it definitely doesn't mean it's it's going to be an easy fire season. Yes, yes. I think a lot of people, it, it sounds like we're really caught by surprise that the, the wet winter and late snows didn't um, result in a, in a, a lower no-fire season. But yeah, that's not the, how, how it works. And you're you're right. I love your point uh, in that um, just because uh, conditions ease a little bit doesn't mean we should go back to our, our squandering wasteful ways. I mean, it, it, we, we really always have so many opportunities to to live sustainably and to, and to feel good with, with every action we take. So this is another one of those. Yeah. And I think one of the things we state for listeners one more time, the statistic about the increased frequency frequency of megafires and what you mean by megafire one more time. So we're looking now at living in an era of what fire ecologists call megafires. Megafires are loosely defined as single fire incidents of 100,000 acres or more. And while those occasionally happened uh, historically over the past many hundreds of years, they were quite rare. But just since 2000, we've had 10 years already with each more than a dozen megafires in them. So this is a phenomenal increase. And it looks like these sorts of fires are going to be with us for for many decades to come. 
the mega fires are uh, of concern because they create their own weather. They're much more difficult to, to fight, more dangerous for the firefighters fighting them, more dangerous to the people living in the wildland urban interface because they can create their own weather and jump into um, canyons very quickly, create their own wind and uh, right. surprise everybody. And then also they can have effects uh, like sterilizing the soil and making yeah, it that. much, much more difficult to regenerate plant life uh, or, or vaporizing, literally vaporizing because of the very hot temperatures, 2200, 2300 degrees, the vegetation in a way that it creates a kind of almost a silicon coating on the ground and, and turns it into what what biologists call hydrophobic soil. And that means that when the rains come uh. in the fall, um, they don't soak in. They just run off and they create these massive debris slides. So for all of these reasons, megafires are, are a concern. And it's uh, an important thing that we continue to address forest treatments to try to reduce those fuel loads as much as we can in the years to come. And de describe what you mean when you say sterilize the soil, because I think that's a really big, important difference between these megafires and those intense heats and a, a healthy stand maintenance fire. Yes, that's true. A stand maintenance fire with temperatures of, of 1,000 or 1,200 degrees would, would creep usually across the forest floor, and it would not kill the... Um, the life in the soil itself. The, the heat itself right. would only affect maybe the top half inch or so of, of soil. There would still be a lot of a micro uh, activity, biological activity underneath. There would be seeds that would be completely untouched by the fire. But when you have uh, big fires of over 2,000 degrees rolling through the forest with lots and lots of fuel, dry fuel, then you can get into situations where the temperatures can get hot enough for long enough that they actually kill all that uh, microbial uh, activity in the soil and they kill the seeds that are in the soil. And there are places in Colorado that burned 20 years ago that really still have very little, if any, uh, vegetative cover on them. And, and, and that, for erosion reasons, as you can imagine, is a, is a very, yeah. very big concern. Erosion and habitat and the, you know, potential invasion by uh, more flammable, less nutritious, less habitat, uh, healthy, invasive grasses and other other things. And and that was that was sort of that was a, a piece of information that was new to me that sort of putting that all together, that if it's this hot, whereas some seeds are are adapted to fire so that they come to life after fire more prolifically, more happily, um, that it, when it gets that hot, you lose that healthy flush of regeneration that comes after a stand maintenance fire. Yes, that, that's right. And I think that, that fact has only recently dawned on the scientific community. That's something they've gotten their heads around only in the last right. probably 15 or 20 years. So it's a concern. And, and in reaction, sometimes, uh, again, using satellite imagery, if they can determine that um, a area has been sterilized because they're not seeing any, any new growth on it, they'll send um, rehab teams in there to to plant and to, and to help deal with this hydrophobic soil that so that nature can get a bit of a kickstart. Yeah, yeah. And that... That whole concept of what we're learning in terms of the restoration management and how to handle debris after a fire and, you know, not remove all of the large woody debris and help shore up the, the creeks along these 
along these fire uh, corridors. Um, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of research and learning being done on the ground right now. Yes, there there really is. And um, some of these uh, men and women are are very quick studies, and they're um, making great hay out of what they've they've learned and and easing these problems fairly quickly. But the scale of of these problems, as you can imagine, can be just overwhelming in a in a in a big fire year. So uh, the resources to keep these men and women doing what they do um, is uh, sometimes uh, a challenge, to say the least. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Gary. It's been an honor to have you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Jennifer. Gary Ferguson is a nature and science writer whose work can be found at wildwords.net. He describes much of his work as breaking down the walls that exist between the natural world and the human psyche. His memoir, The Carry Home, Lessons from the American Wilderness, is excerpted in the 2016 essay entitled A Deeper Boom, which was published in Orion magazine. This essay was selected as the best essay of 2016 by the American Society of Journalists and Authors. His most recent book, Land on Fire, is primarily a collection of scientific lectures about wildfire. Gary and his wife, Dr. Mary Clare, a cultural psychologist, make their lives between their homes in Montana and Oregon. Gary joined us today from Oregon Public Broadcasting in Portland. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. If you enjoy Cultivating Place and value these conversations about gardens and natural history, please subscribe to Cultivating Place wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the program. Or, most meaningfully, share it with others who value this level of conversation about these things we love and which connect us. Together, we make a difference. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.